Welcome to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society, otherwise known as BCSS, as well as our BC partner organizations. I'm your host, Phaedra Aldridge. Mental health, it's a well-covered topic, and people often lump it together with mental illness. But for our first episode, we want to strongly challenge the idea that disorders like schizophrenia are mental health issues. So today on Look Again, we're asking, what is the difference between mental health and serious mental illness? And why does mental illness need its own specific plan of action? We're about to find out. So my guest today is Dr. Diane McIntosh a clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. She has a community psychiatry practice and is the chief neuroscience officer for TELUS Health. And I'm not done yet. Dr. McIntosh has been a tireless advocate for more compassionate and appropriate care for psychiatric patients and their families. She's the co-founder of SwitchRx. She's also developed her own online continuing medical education program called Psyched Up. She's also published commentary in Psychology Today, Huffington Post, and many newspapers, including the Vancouver Sun. And she's an author and has a new book called This is Depression, A Comprehensive and Compassionate Guide for Those Who Want to Understand Depression. But I'm not done yet. Just last December, Dr. McIntosh was also voted one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women by the Women's Executive Network. That's fantastic. Dr. McIntosh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So for this very first episode, we really want to look at the difference between mental health and mental illness. Dr. McIntosh, what is this difference? The way that I understand a mental illness is that you meet a particular diagnostic criteria, meaning that there are Every mental illness has a particular set of diagnosis or symptoms that come together along with an impact on your functioning. So it's not just the symptoms alone, but how those symptoms affect your ability to work, to parent, other relationships in your life. And to be diagnosed with a mental illness, you have to have a certain number of those symptoms along with functional impairment, and that leads to being given a specific diagnosis, schizophrenia, bipolar, depression. All of us have mental health, right? That mental health itself is, you know, living um, in a a healthy manner, being able to engage with the people around you, to be physically active, to have a healthy gut biome, which actually those are the bugs that live in your gut that help your brain to stay healthy as well. So being um, mentally healthy and having a mental illness, they are linked, but a mental illness is a very specific set of symptoms that impact your ability to function. And I've been hearing those terms used synonymously, mental health and mental illness, especially I've noticed during COVID-19. So how do you, in your practice, how do you introduce the difference between mental health and mental illness to your patients or to the families that you work with? Phaedra, it's kind of an interesting question because here we are, two adults, having to separate this for adults listening to this podcast. And it 
I really believe that we need to, the same way that we deal with sexual health now in school, starting in kindergarten with this is my body and moving from there, that we need to give young people a vocabulary so that they do understand what is healthy, when is, when is uh, something changed to the point where you're actually suffering from an illness, when do you need help? Because I think we see a lot of young people right now saying, I'm anxious, I'm anxious. But when when is normal worry or normal fear, when does it become anxiety? And when do you need to ask for help? And when do parents need to be worried? So I, I feel a little sad that people really still struggle with these terms because uh, they don't have a vocabulary. And so I think this is a great thing about podcasts like this is that we start to actually put meaning around some of these words. So now let's delve into terminology. And you touched on this, Dr. McIntosh, but I would like to talk about terminology and the words we use. Now, something that I hear a lot is, why do you still use the term schizophrenia? Our organization is the BC Schizophrenia Society. And I've had quite a few people ask me, why do you still use that term? It's derogatory. It's negative. It has negative connotations. It's scary. Schizophrenia affects everyone. What are your thoughts on that? My particular belief on this is that it isn't the word that carries the power. It's the meaning behind it. It's how people have been treated in the context of living with schizophrenia. And so that's what's made it such an emotional term for some people. We, we put our emotions around those words and it's really unfortunate because it's just a word. It does, however, when, when you have so many people sort of saying there's, there's negative connotations or that it's, it's pejorative, that speaks to the power of stigma that continues and to the harm that's been done in the past to people who have symptoms that are consistent with the word schizophrenia. And so I hope that by having these kind of conversations, we start to think about not necessarily the word, because the word isn't where the power is. It's how have we behaved in the past and how can we change that? And I think one of the most critical parts about that is stigma. And the fact that people who are living with severe and persistent mental illnesses like schizophrenia, like bipolar disorder, like a severe depression, still face stigma. But not just in the, we think about the general public, or maybe there are certain groups where the stigma is more powerful or alive. The stigma around mental illness lives in medicine. It lives in psychiatry. And until we all come to grapple this and, and really address it and lay it bare, it's going to continue. And what I mean by that is that we still struggle to get people who are uh, physicians or nurses to actually come forward with their own mental illness. And people who are living with mental illness are often treated in a very derogatory, negative manner simply because of a label they have been given. And that has personally affected me in my practice, the way that some of my patients have been treated. That has, I think, really traumatized me. Uh, the way that my profession in general has responded to the needs of people who have mental illness in sometimes a very uh, unkind, condescending, or even cruel manner. That is the problem. Giving someone a diagnosis is often, it should be, an experience is really freeing to say, oh my goodness, I had all these different pieces and you've helped to bring them together so that I can understand what's going on. Some, some very difficult diagnosis can be very helpful to an individual when, when they understand that all of these pieces fit together. And because I understand all those pieces, 
I can help you to move forward. If you're experiencing this, Dr. McIntosh, what do you think we as a society, as a general population, can do to start to break down some of those barriers and, and start to really delve into stigma and everything associated with severe and persistent mental illness? I think the ways that we tackle this uh, will be, that's the way we're going to change this, is by actually educating people about what what does it mean to have schizophrenia and uh, confronting that stigma, starting to write these op-eds because of the way I saw people being treated. And many of my colleagues said, yeah, you go, good for you, and I'm behind you, but I'm not putting my name out there because I don't want my colleagues to start to sort of pile on top of me because I did it. So there's a fear out there that if you speak out and say, we're not doing things the right way, we're not treating people kindly, we're not putting patients in the center of all our decisions. And one of the things that drives me most bananas about the whole process is not including loved ones. We know that when we treat a human being, they are not the only person that is affected by that illness. The people that they love are affected too. So what attitudes or social barriers stand in the way of people getting the right medications for their respective mental illness? Most people, when they go through medical school, do not have adequate training in psychiatry. We know that every mental illness, every mental illness is associated with an increased risk of physical illnesses, uh, with diabetes, with heart disease, with obesity, with inflammatory disorders. And the reverse is also true. If you are living with obesity, heart disease, inflammatory illness, you have an increased risk of mental illness. So the reason I went to medical school to become a psychiatrist is because I needed that medical school, that whole body understanding. And then on top of that, to have this expertise in treating psychiatric disorders or mental illnesses. But we don't treat or train, sorry, um, my colleagues in an adequate manner to understand this mind-body connection. But as the science of uh, psychiatry has grown and, and we're starting to understand that these are all brain illnesses and the, what are the brain chemicals and what is the genetics and what is the brain structure and functional changes that are a result of this illness or the cause of this illness, that helps us to have more credibility within the medical field. So we need to make sure that we engage in better training for all healthcare professionals, including my colleagues in other areas of medicine, but also pharmacists. I was a pharmacist, I did pharmacy training, and I didn't have a clinical understanding of the experience of schizophrenia or depression or bipolar disorder. Nurses need better training. Every person who is involved in the treatment of someone who's living with mental illness needs to have better education, period. We are failing on that front. Now, I want to make the point that not everyone who has a mental illness requires medication. But if you have a very severe uh, mental illness that impacts your ability to function, that on more days than not, you're depressed or you're experiencing significant anxiety symptoms, you're experiencing uh, delusions, hallucinations associated with schizophrenia, for instance, we know and the data shows us that if we treat early, fully, And completely, we protect your brain. We help you to hold on to the skills, the abilities, the functions, the brain power, the cognitive capacity. The sooner and the more effectively and fully we treat you, the more you're protected. And Dr. McIntosh, I just want to dig a little deeper. You talked about depression. And here's an interesting fact. According to psychcom.net, about 25% of people diagnosed with schizophrenia meet the criteria for depression. 
And depressive symptoms can occur throughout all the phases of the illness, including during psychotic episodes. And I know in your latest book, which is called This is Depression, you you talk about this. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the crossover between depression and other serious mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia. Right. Well, um, there's major depressive disorder, which is that you just have a depressive episode that um, you're, you're usually you have a normal mood and you get depressed, you feel down, you lose interest in things that you would normally enjoy. There's changes in your sleep and your appetite. And hopefully with treatment, you start to get better again. That's just regular old depression. It's horrible, but it's still depression. And when you have a bipolar disorder, then your moods can go above uh, into areas where you're what's called mania or hypomania, lots of energy, don't need sleep. Sometimes there's psychosis associated if it's mania, but people who have bipolar actually spend most of their time depressed. So when we tend to think about bipolar, we focus on the high because that's what makes it different from unipolar depression. But in fact, the sad truth about bipolar disorder is people spend most of their lives or the more than half their lives generally experiencing symptoms of depression. The same is true with schizophrenia. We tend to think about schizophrenia as just the, the symptoms associated with that disorder, but there are very high rates of both anxiety and depression, and often they're missed or they're not looked for carefully and recognized. And we know that the suicide rates associated with schizophrenia and bipolar are higher than they are with depression. So it's, it is critical that we pay attention. The other piece of that is, and I think it's an, another reason why engaging pharmacists who are so respected amongst their patients is an understanding that sometimes you need more than one drug. Sometimes you may need three or four. And I want to keep people on as few medications as possible. But if I have a patient who is experiencing schizophrenia symptoms and they develop depression, that means that they may require an antidepressant. And we need to make sure that everyone who is involved with that patient understands why. Why are we adding an extra medication? And is that combination safe? And if it doesn't work, what do we do next? But there's a rationale for each part of the treatment. And if people have negative experiences with medication, then introducing a new medication or the idea of it becomes really scary for them. So we need to start treating early, but giving people as much education as possible around the why. Why is this important? How might it help you? And if someone becomes depressed, why we need to add something else in and what it means, what it should do. And if you're having problems, we can try something else. You're listening to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and BC Partner Organizations. I'm your host, Phaedra Aldridge. This podcast would not be possible without the support of the entire community. From the bottom of our hearts, we want to thank you for caring about mental illness. Together, we truly can make a difference. Okay, we're back with Dr. Diane McIntosh, psychiatrist, educator, author, and speaker. Dr. McIntosh, I'd like to share a few thoughts with you now from members of a panel that we've compiled. They're made up of families of people with mental illness. We asked them to talk about when they first knew that something was not right with their loved one. And we're going to hear some of those thoughts. It takes a while to arrive at the full diagnosis of schizophrenia. So we've had some, some confusing times, especially recently, about 
is this schizophrenia? Is it somewhere on the path to schizophrenia? You know, we're not entirely sure because um, it certainly does look and have a lot of the symptoms of schizophrenia. Things were really difficult around the house. He, it was really, really difficult to have him at home by then. And um, he up and left and he ended up in Vancouver and then just disappeared for basically the next six months. He got through a year of uh, university, was in plays and volunteering, and then bam, he couldn't think straight and the voices, and it was living hell to watch him descend. Uh, he started to experience symptoms in high school, but we're not really sure when. I think it's classic for a lot of young people to just hide the confusion and the fear and so we're guessing it was a couple of years but he was 20 when he started to really exhibit symptoms that were impossible to ignore. We made contact with police eventually he had a run-in with the law and they contacted us and we sent a bus ticket and got him home and that's when we became aware of of how really ill he was. Okay, I live in uh, South Surrey, and uh, I have four sons, three of whom have schizophrenia. And so for about five years, we were in crisis every day. Two of them, there's been violence involved. One has tried to kill me, has been in the criminal justice system, uh, charged with attempted murder. You know, one is fairly docile and gentle. We, we've experienced probably almost anything a, a family could have with schizophrenia. I don't know why I did. I did always kind of feel like something like if there was a, one of my kids, something was going to be wrong. It was going to be with him. And um, so I had actually always been asking him, like, do you hear voices? Once he was charged and went to court, then the, uh, the probation system got involved and realized how sick he was and and forced him into the hospital. And that's when we found out that he was schizophrenic. So I was not terribly surprised when it happened, but I was very frustrated with not getting a diagnosis right away because they don't want to label you. And I kept sort of saying, you know, all I need to know is what's wrong. I can deal with whatever it is. I just need to know what it is. Those are just some of the thoughts that we've heard. And Dr. McIntosh, you probably hear a lot within your practice. They just want to know what it is. And I know a lot of families, there's a lot of confusion when they first hear the term schizophrenia or that their loved one has been diagnosed with a severe and persistent mental illness. You know, perhaps they're in denial or confused or they mistook the symptoms for being something else or they believe that medication wasn't necessary or they didn't think it was serious. What do you think is behind this reluctance or inability or sometimes even denial to face the reality of mental illness? I think it's terrifying, honestly. I mean, as a parent, uh, knowing what, you know, the worry that you have about your child, and it's not just the parent that's terrified, the child is terrified. They're often having, and I think one of the parents actually articulated that, how, how scared they were. We're not even sure when the symptoms started. I'm sure that he was worried that he had these uh, scary experiences, but it didn't become really clear until he was 20. So you have very confusing um, symptoms. You're 
you may be hearing voices, you're having unusual perceptual uh, disturbances. Often your mood is low. So they're feeling uh, on the depressed side, may have a lot of anxiety as well. And so they isolate and parents are wondering, are they isolating because that's a normal teen thing to do? Or is there something going on? And if they're somewhat paranoid, then they might be afraid to say something. Uh, They're feeling somewhat directed by their voice. I knew it wasn't normal, so I didn't want to say anything because I was afraid. And so I think acknowledging that it is scary for everyone involved, it comes back to what the mom at the end said, which is, I just wanted to know. And everyone's afraid to label. And maybe some of that fear of labeling comes from, that's a big word, schizophrenia, because of all the emotion behind it, rather than saying, you know, all of these pieces, I'm not exactly sure. And sometimes I'm not sure. Sometimes I'm not sure. Is this bipolar disorder? Is it schizophrenia? Is this related to cannabis use or some other drug use? So it can be confusing. But to say all of these pieces lead me to believe that this may be a possibility, at least parents have some sense of where we're going. So Dr. McIntosh, how do we know the difference How do we know? So when you have parents coming to you and they say, my child is different, or if you have an individual coming to you saying, I'm just not feeling quite right, but maybe it's just because I'm a little bit sad because my girlfriend broke up with me or I didn't get my A mark on my exam. How do we know when it's a problem? If we're talking specifically about schizophrenia, again, you go back to what what is the diagnosis? What are the constellation of symptoms that tend to group together to lead me to believe that that person has a diagnosis of schizophrenia? And the most common things that people experience, especially if they're really young, is a change in behavior, right? That withdrawing, uh, being more quiet, maybe more down. You can have certainly irritability, explosiveness, a lot of frustration, but then those symptoms that are quite unique to schizophrenia, having auditory hallucinations, and then there's the delusions, the false beliefs, and they can start at the same time. They can start at different times. They can change over time, but those false beliefs associated with schizophrenia are are most often, again, mean, scary. People are trying to harm me. Maybe they're out to get me. Having these beliefs, what makes a delusion different than sort of, I wonder, could it be, is that despite all kinds of evidence, people still hold on to a clearly false belief. One of the families that we heard there, she said that she felt that something was wrong, that if there was going to be something wrong with with any of her children, it was that particular child. What advice do you have? So if somebody is sensing something is wrong with their child, their partner, their parent, what advice do you have for them if they suspect a serious mental illness. A long time ago, I stopped asking my children, how's your day? (laughs) I asked my children, and it started when they were in elementary school, uh, tell me about your day. Because the way that you get your kids to talk to you and create that safe environment is, of course, loving them and trying to limit the chaos in your home. And the poor gentleman who has three of his four sons with schizophrenia, how do you reduce chaos in a situation like that? So I am not saying that lightly when I say, you know, a loving, non-chaotic environment is the best uh, most nurturing environment for a growing brain, but it's it's not necessarily easy to eliminate chaos in your home. But having those daily times when you put your phone down, you look at your kid and say, tell me about your day. 
That is the way that even on the most boring day and even on the most busy day that you sit there and listen and it might be two minutes and it might be seven minutes or 27, but as they get older, they will have those conversations with you. And if your gut is saying something's not right, but your child, especially your teenager, sort of reacting strongly, the conversation would be, you don't seem quite yourself. And of course, I always love you. There will never be any judgment. But I think we've always found that when we talk about things, I always help to make it feel better. So when you're ready, I am here. But, you know, I'm not going to push you, but I'm always here and there's no judgment. I will always love you. The other thing to say is if you're worried and you say, well, we're going to take you to the family doctor or access care in some way, and you feel that you're not treated respectfully, you're not heard, it's it's not a good experience, please don't give up. There is always a path forward. And I think people do have negative experiences that send them off course. And just to remind you that there are good people out there. And if you don't feel that you're being heard or respected, please keep trying. So what I heard you just say there is to keep talking. And I think that's the key. Let's keep talking about it, whether it be within your own family, your children coming to you as mom and saying, here's my day, here's what's happening within individual families, but also us as a society. And that's what I'm so happy and so thrilled we have this opportunity to talk today, Dr. McIntosh, and for you to be the first guest on this podcast, which is very exciting. What a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all day, but uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. And for more information about everything you just said, I know you can get all the information on your website, www.drdianemackintosh.com. And if you missed that, we're also going to be putting a link on the BCSS website, which is www.bcss.org. Okay, Dr. McIntosh, thank you so much. Truly my pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and the BC Partners for Mental Health and Substance Use Information. We're a group of nonprofit agencies providing good quality information to help individuals and families maintain or improve their mental well-being. The BC Partners members are Anxiety Canada, BC Schizophrenia Society, Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division, Family Smart, Jesse's Legacy, the North Shore Family Services Program, and Mood Disorders Association of BC, a branch of Lookout Housing and Health Society. The BC Partners are funded and stewarded by BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, an agency of the Provincial Health Services Authority. For more information, visit heretohelp.bc.ca. 